Liz wrinkled her brow. Hmm. The next part of the fiddle's riddle says a voice in the tavern. Does that mean he will work in a tavern? How can this be a career choice that will lead him to greatness? <laughs> You'll see. Sometimes young people have to experience failure as they figure out the right path over time. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderofthe7.com. On today's episode, we'll bring you Chapter 22 from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, Plus, later, we'll hear some personal insights from our author extraordinaire, Jenny L. Cody, as today we focus on failure. What? Why in the name of Pete would you focus on failure, then? We, what good does that do? I say, shouldn't we be more concerned about succeeding than failing? Oh, uh, that reminds me, I I, uh, failed to properly introduce our hosts today, so here they are, Max, Liz, and Nigel. Sorry about that. Well, thank you, laddie, but you didn't exactly fail to introduce us. Indeed, we rather jumped the gun, as it were, and failed to let you introduce us. There's that word again, fail. Uh, Why are we talking about this, eh? Aye, I admit, I've failed a few times in my life, but I don't feel like dragging it all up again. Indeed, what's done is done. I say, let's move on. Well, okay, we'll move on for the moment. But as we hear today's episode, listen for Clary to make a statement about failure. We're going to find that failure has more value than any of us wants to admit. Chapter 22. A Brilliant Move. Studley Plantation, Hanover, April 27, 1749. The fresh fragrance of spring filled the air on this sun-drenched Sunday, Max, Liz, and Nigel walked through the fields of Studley Plantation, waiting for Patrick's return from the church service at Polgreen. "'So is the new house finished yet, Mercy?' Max asked. Uh, "'Not yet, but Cato and I did a flyover yesterday, and it's coming along splendidly,' Nigel answered. "'It's a charming English-style house, with a solid brick foundation for the story-and-a-half structure.' I took the liberty of inspecting the roof, and was quite impressed to see the hand-hewn oak framing. Liz noticed a butterfly flitting around them. I look forward to seeing the new Henry Chateau. I was most pleased when I first walked around the Petite Mountain where their new home could sit. It reminded me of my home in France. She winked at Nigel. I am pleased that John Henry pursued our anonymous suggestion to build on that property, Monsieur Monaco. You make a delightful travelling surveyor on paper, no? Indeed. I rather liked posing behind the quill as a Frenchman travelling through the Virginia countryside. Nigel chuckled and preened his whiskers excitedly. My dear, the landscape is lovely, just like your beloved Norman countryside. 
Six hundred thirty acres of rolling land that gently slopes downward more than half a mile to the South Anna River. But it's a shame the Henrys have to leave Studley, Max replied, that we have to leave Studley. Moving twenty miles away will take us far from the forest and Cato. Max, I assure you, Patrick will be thrilled with the adventure of new fishing spots and swimming holes, Nigel assured his canine friend. There's a whole new forest of tall trees with wild game for him to hunt and birds for him to talk to. You see, Max, John Syme Jr. has come of age, and Studley, by right of inheritance, is his land, Liz explained. So John Henry must honor the way things are and move the family. The butterfly landed atop Max's nose. Suddenly, Clary interjected. Things never stay the same, Max, and lots of changes are in the air. You'll be leaving Patrick Henry soon as it is. Gilliman has new instructions for all of us. Liz smiled. Bonjour, Clary. What do you mean? Where will Max go? For now, you and Max will both move with the Henrys to their new home twenty miles from here, Clary answered. Keep up your watch care of Patrick in the new forest and get him settled in his new home. His time to enjoy this new home will be short-lived, however. He is growing up, and the time for deciding what he will do with his life is at hand. He will soon take the next step to find his voice. Liz wrinkled her brow. Hmm. The next part of the fiddle's riddle says a voice in the tavern. Does that mean he will work in a tavern? How can this be a career choice that will lead him to greatness? <laughs> You'll see. Sometimes young people have to experience failure as they figure out the right path over time, Clary explained with a knowing grin. Speaking of time, Patrick cannot know that you are immortal, so in the coming years you and Max both will need to leave him for a while. Max, you will go on assignment to help Gilliman watch over George Washington. Weren't he the lad who lost his father at the beginning of this mission? Max asked. Yes, he's now seventeen, and has just received his surveyor's license from the College of William and Mary, Clary reported. In the near future, he will head to the Ohio country and will need your protection. Nothing, and I mean nothing, can be allowed to harm George Washington. Know that when the time comes, you and Gilliman will be very busy in making sure no harm reaches him. Aye, lass, ye can count on me, Max stated determinedly. What about Patrick's protection? There is no threat to him for the time being, she assured him. Liz, when the time comes for you to leave Patrick's sight, you will actually still remain near him, but he must not know it. When you later reappear... He will think you are simply a different black cat who resembles his beloved Liz. <sighs> this makes sense, no? My brilliant Henry, of course, would figure out that something was amiss if his pets kept living for years on end, Liz answered. If I may, back to the current situation with the Henry move. What about Patrick's ability to hear Samuel Davies on Sundays? Nigel asked. Twenty miles may be short as the eagle flies, but not for humans over country roads. It would be too far for them to drive to Pole Green Church once they move. We arranged for Davies to be granted a license to preach in the Ground Squirrel Meeting House, only three miles from their new home, so Patrick will be able to continue learning from Davies at that location, 
Clary told him. But, Nigel, you need to leave for Philadelphia. It is time to start your mission with Benjamin Franklin. Nigel clapped his paws. Jolly good! How I've looked forward to this mission! I say, should I enlist Cato as my transport? Yes, in fact, Cato is meant to be your transport, for this will be the first of many flights to Philadelphia, Clary answered. Gilliman set things in motion with Ben Franklin today at Christ Church. When Franklin established the first library in Philadelphia, a merchant in London named Peter Collinson became his contact for ordering books. They soon discovered a mutual love for scientific discovery. For the past couple of years, Franklin has been corresponding with Collinson about his experiments with electricity in the laboratory. But as of today, Ben will begin a whole new quest of discovery to learn about electricity and lightning. Nigel, you must see to it that he writes to Collinson about these new ideas taken from his journal notes. Al and Kate will figure out a way to then get those letters to David Henry. It is vital that Ben's work be published for more eyes to see than just Mr. Collinson's. Brilliant, Nigel cheered. Is that all? A simple mission of correspondence? Clary smiled. <laughs> Hardly, Nigel. The letters are just the beginning. You will then need to help Ben figure out how to actually conduct his experiments. Nigel's eyes widened and his whiskers wiggled. How utterly thrilling! What bliss to delve into the world of scientific discovery! Splendid! I think Mosey's excited, Max teased with a chuckle. Clary, I was fascinated to learn that Benjamin Franklin and David Henry know each other, Liz added. It seems with this mission there are many connections taking place over in London. Yes, we have been setting things in place for quite some time, but... You'll be happy to know that it was Al who came up with the brilliant idea to connect these men even further, Clarie replied. Liz beamed. Boom! What was my Albel's idea? It involves Nigel's favorite composer, Clarie answered with a grin. Mr. Handel? Nigel exclaimed. Yes, Mr. George F. Handel himself. As you know, part of your mission to help Handel write Messiah was so it would become the most famous music ever written or performed. Since Messiah's initial debut in London, it has not been performed much in seven years, so Kate was working on a way to promote Messiah. Al had an idea to help hurting children at the same time, Clarie explained. Peter Collinson is not only a scientist who corresponds with Benjamin Franklin, but he also established the Foundling Hospital for Children in London. Al suggested the idea of Handel performing Messiah to help raise money for the children, so Gilliman and I will soon set things in motion to make that benefit concert happen. Jolly good show, Nigel cheered. I must say, I am delightfully surprised that Al suggested this, since music is not his forte. Music? No. But children, we, oui. c'est magnifique. My Albert is much smarter than he lets on, Liz beamed proudly. I presume that in addition to Peter Collinson, uh, David Henry will be there. Clarie nodded. Yes, Kate will see to it that David publicizes the event in Gentleman's Magazine. 
This benefit concert will finally not only be the key to Messiah's success, but will be the first key on the ring to unlock future success for Franklin, Patrick Henry, and ultimately, America. What a brilliant move with that kitty and me bonny lass, Max cheered with a grin, wagging his tail. Stupendous! Nigel welled up with emotion. How glorious for Handel's Messiah to finally get the attention it deserves while helping the orphan children of London. So, Handel, Henry, and Collinson will all be connected to this event, Clarice started to say, ergo, Henry and Collinson will then be connected for publishing Franklin's electric letters. Nigel quickly interjected, My dear, this is a brilliant plan. I understand the keys for helping Handel and Franklin, but how will any of these help my Henry and America? Liz asked with a puzzled expression. How can this be? Time will tell, Liz, Clary replied with a smile. It always does. In the meantime, why don't you come up with a name for the new Henry Plantation? Your little mount, as you call it. Since it was your brilliant idea, feel free to put your name on it. You can help John Henry... Come up with the name himself. She winked at Liz and flew off. Liz smiled shyly as she watched the butterfly flitter into the air. Hmm, Mount Lizette? No, this is much too obvious, no? Clarice said it were a brilliant idea, lass, Max added with a grin. Nigel tapped a finger on his chin. Right, isn't your maiden name Lizette Briant, my dear? And didn't the Henry ancestors originate from your home of Normandy, France? Liz's eyes lit up with delight. Oui, c'est magnifique! Perhaps a name that speaks to their Norman roots, she answered. La Montaigne Briand, she said softly, pondering a minute longer. But the Henrys be Scottish now, lass, Max reminded her. Scots wouldn't dare name their house after the Frenchies. You better translate it then. C'est vrai, Max. Liz answered. She broke out in a wide grin. Then the name will be Montbriant. Philadelphia, April 29th, 1749. I was so little when they took me away to London that I don't remember much about this place. I've never seen anything like this before, Cato exclaimed as he and Nigel soared over the city of Philadelphia. Wide, dusty streets and broad thoroughfares framed the bustling city below, with occasionally paved narrow back streets and alleys peeling off to reach row upon row of merchant buildings. What kind of fat red trees are those? Nigel smiled and patted the eagle on his shoulder. My boy, those are not trees, but buildings. The humans make them with the wood from trees, and also with hard red objects called bricks. Nigel scanned the busy harbor, filled with tall ships unloading cargo. Welcome back to your hometown of Philadelphia. Of course, this Philadelphia is nothing like the original I visited in Asia Minor, I assure you. He chuckled warmly and pointed to the Pennsylvania State House. <laughs> Why don't you land on that tall red building just there? Sure thing, Nigel, Cato replied, coming in for a landing on the roof. Nigel preened back his wind-blown fur as he hopped off Cato's back. May I commend you for your superb flight from Virginia. We have broken the mouse air travel barrier by traveling 200 miles in just two days. Well done, old boy. 
He bowed with one foot forward. At your service, Cato said, spreading his wings and bowing graciously back to the little mouse. Do you know where Ben Franklin lives? Together, Nigel and Cato walked to the edge of the roof of the State House and looked at the city streets below. From Clary's instructions, I believe I shall find him in that direction, Nigel answered, pointing down the street. I shall proceed to his house and take up my abode there for the time being, enlisting pigeon transport while in the city. I hope you enjoy the seafood here during our stay. I've heard it is simply delectable. I think I'll go fishing now, Cato replied, eyeing the harbor in the distance. How long do you think we'll need to stay here in Philadelphia? I imagine at least a year, possibly more. So settle into a new nest on the outskirts of town and make yourself at home as a Philadelphia eagle in the city of brotherly love, Nigel said, patting his wing. He waved to a pigeon flying by, flagging her down. I shall find you when there is news to report. Otherwise, you'll know where to find me. He walked up to the pigeon who had landed on the roof. Good day, my dear. I am Nigel P. Monaco, on assignment for the maker. Would you be so kind as to transport me to the home of Mr. Benjamin Franklin? I'd be delighted, Nigel, the pigeon replied with a sweet smile. I'm Phoebe. It's an honor. Climb aboard. Cato smiled and shook his head good-humoredly as the little mouse flew away on the pigeon. That charming mouse sure knows how to get around. The bald eagle then lifted off the roof and headed toward the harbor. Oil lamps were scattered all around the study of Benjamin Franklin. Nigel scurried among the shadows cast on the floor by the lamp's flickering light against objects of all shapes and sizes. Never had Nigel seen such a wonderland of inventions, some completed and some in process. Franklin sat in a rumpled black robe, stocking cap, and slippers, mumbling as he dipped his quill in the ink to feverishly scrawl his latest theories across the yellowed parchment of his journal. Electrified clouds pass over. High trees, lofty towers, spires, masts of ships, he continued. Nigel couldn't make out what the inventor was saying for the next few minutes until he made a loud exclamation. A turkey! Ha! He said out loud to himself as he neared the end of his entry for the night, chuckling as he wrote. When he finished writing, he set his quill down and stretched out his back with a satisfying groan. Ah, oh, <laughs> I can smell it now. He chuckled, yawned, and then blew out the oil lamps. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Nigel waited until Franklin had left the room before he relit the lamp on the desk. Let us see what you have penned, Mr. Franklin. He turned the pages of the journal until he found the part about the electrified clouds. He ran his paw along the page, nodding as he read, explaining to himself aloud what Franklin had hypothesized. Brilliant! So the water vapors in a cloud can be electrically charged, with the positive and the negative charges separating in electrified clouds. Then, as they pass over tall objects, they draw the electrical fire, and the whole cloud discharges. Dangerous, therefore, it is to take shelter under a tree during a thundergust. Nigel scanned further through the details of Franklin's hypothesis. Now, what was it you wrote about a turkey? He soon found the journal entry.
chagrined a little that we have hitherto been able to produce nothing in this way of use to mankind, and the hot weather coming on, when electrical experiments are not so agreeable. Tis proposed to put an end to them for this season, somewhat humorously, in a party of pleasure on the banks of the Schuylkill, the river that washes one side of Philadelphia as the Delaware does the other. Both are ornamented with the summer habitations of the citizens and the agreeable mansions of the principal people of this colony. Spirits, at the same time, are to be fired by a spark sent from side to side through the river without any other conductor than the water. An experiment which we sometime since performed to the amazement of many. A turkey is to be killed for our dinner by the electrical shock and roasted by the electrical jack, an electric device I invented that rotates the turkey, before a fire kindled by the electrified bottle. When the healths of all the famous electricians in England, Holland, France, and Germany are to be drank in electrified bumpers under the discharge of guns from the electrical battery. Nigel's eyes widened. He's going to electrify a turkey for a barbecue. Oh, dear, I best make sure that Cato does not attend, should Mr. Franklin wish to choose a bald eagle over a turkey. Mount Brilliant, April 1750 Come on, I know you can do it. You're the most athletic boy I know, encouraged Patrick, giving skinny Jonah a playful nudge. He dug into his pocket and pulled out a few pennies to hold out to the servant. If you climb up that tree, say, ten feet, I'll pay you for your trouble. Jonah's brown eyes widened at the challenge. This would not only be fun, but profitable as well. You got yourself a deal. The young boy ran over to the tall pine tree and wrapped his hands around the trunk. Patrick raised his hand to stop him. Ah, feet first, remember? Jonah's bright smile lit up his face as he laughed at himself. He squatted down to the ground and did a handstand to get himself into position. Patrick grinned and crossed his arms on his chest. Up you go! As he stood there watching Jonah, Patrick's cousin Charles Dabney snickered and jabbed him with his elbow. You're making him climb up that tree feet first? Not making him. I'm paying him to do it, Patrick replied. Jonah does fun stuff like this all the time. Max and Liz stood back, watching the hilarious scene. At least he's not asking Jonah to untangle knots he made on purpose in his fishing line just to see the lad work the knots like a puzzle. Liz giggled. My Henry has developed quite the mischievous streak, but it is all in good fun, no? George Dabney, Charles's older brother, stood with his mouth open, watching Jonah climb the tree feet first. Well, I'll be... Patrick held out a hand to Jonah. Didn't I tell you he could do it? He walked over and stood under the tree. Good job, Jonah. Better get down now before all the blood rushes to your head. Jonah shimmied back down the tree and did a flip to land on his feet. He held out his hand, and Patrick slapped the coins into his palm. Until the next trick, Mr. Henry. You'll never know when that'll be, Patrick winked at his friend before turning to his cousins. Charles, George? Ready to go canoeing? The South Anna River was high from recent rains. The three cousins would easily be able to slip their dugout canoe into the fast-flowing river. I'm kind of hot, 
Patrick said as he took off his hunting shirt and checkered pants, leaving them on the bank. He slid a paddle into the canoe. You two ready? I am. Let's go fishing, Charles enthused, placing his fishing pole in the canoe. He and George and Patrick got behind the canoe, and together the three teenage boys shoved the heavy wooden vessel into the river. Once they got settled, Patrick handed the paddle to George. I'm going to relax for a while in the sunshine. He draped his arms over the bow and rested his head back on the rim of the canoe. He closed his eyes and breathed in deeply, enjoying the sun on his face. What a perfect day! The three boys drifted along and Patrick listened to the birds in the trees. He lifted a finger and pointed to the various birds, keeping his eyes closed as he named their species and exactly where they were chirping. Cardinal? Goldfinch? Wren? You really know your bird calls, Pat! George complimented him, looking toward the birds as Patrick blindly pointed to them. Patrick pointed to his ear. Just take the time to listen and learn. After a while, the boys reached a deeper spot of the river that was a great swimming hole. I'm glad you're closer to us now at Mount Brilliant, Pat, Charles said as he threw a line into the water. Patrick kept his eyes closed and smiled. Me too. I like it here. Good fishing in the South Anna. He opened one eye to peek and see where they were. A big grin appeared on his face, and suddenly he arched his back over the canoe and slipped into the water backwards, causing the canoe to tip over. Good swimming, too, he said, laughing as he bobbed to the surface. Charles and George went flailing into the chilly river as the tipped canoe tossed them into the water, fully clothed. Pat! Oops, sorry, Patrick said with a mischievous grin. He dove under and surfaced again, squirting a fountain of water out of his mouth. I've been gone too long. I need to get back to the house. He grabbed his fishing pole, swam over to the river bank, and climbed out of the water. I have to get to father's class. You boys all right to get the canoe back? Charles slapped the surface of the water at Patrick. Yeah, sure. We'll get the canoe back. See you later, Pat. Patrick grinned and ran back to retrieve his dry clothes to head home. George and Charles pushed the canoe to the river bank so they could right it and dump the water out. They stepped out and felt the weight of their soggy, dripping clothes. George frowned as he looked at Charles. That's the third time Patrick has accidentally tipped the canoe. Have you ever noticed he always seems to end up with dry clothes while we're left sopping wet? A look of realization came over Charles's face. He put his hands on his hips and shook his head at the ground, laughing. <laughs> Brother, I think we've been had by our sly cousin. We'll have to get him back somehow. Max rolled on the ground laughing while Liz giggled at the soggy boys. <laughs> I have to hand it to your Henry lass. He's one sneaky, funny lad. Liz's eyes glimmered with delight as she watched Patrick hurriedly slip on his dry clothes and laugh to himself before running back home to get to class. Brilliant, Mon Henry. So after twenty years of war, and after defeating King Edward II at the Battle of Bannockburn, isn't it reasonable to see how King Robert the Bruce and the Scottish people would have thought they would be left in peace? John Henry said, pacing about in the front of his study as Patrick and William sat at their desks in his makeshift classroom. He held up his hand and wagged his pointer finger. But the English king would not give up that easily. 
the Scottish Wars of Independence raged on. In addition to the military war, there was a war of ideas with the Pope, who had excommunicated Robert the Bruce for murdering a rival to the throne on the altar steps of the Franciscan Abbey. The English king then inflamed the people to action when he encouraged the Pope to excommunicate all the people of Scotland from the church. Aye, I remember this mess, Max huffed. He and Liz were sitting quietly in the corner for today's tutoring session after following Patrick back from the river. Robert the Bruce were unjustly treated, despite what he did. I should know. I were there. Steady, Max, Liz whispered softly, putting her paw onto Max's bristled fur. I know how sensitive you are about the memory of your namesake. So the declaration of Arbroath was Scotland's response to the Pope? William asked, as he and Patrick looked over the famous April 6, 1320 document printed in Latin in their history book. Exactly, Bill. It was a letter to the Pope, signed by 51 nobles, asking him to reject the claims of the English king, John Henry replied. Read it over, and tell me what you see as the main points in this declaration. It says that Scotland has always been independent, even for longer than England, and that Edward I of England had unjustly attacked Scotland, adding the atrocities of war, William began. But Robert the Bruce had delivered the Scottish nation from such peril. Patrick read an excerpt. For as long as a hundred of us remain alive, never will we on any conditions be brought under English rule. It is in truth not for glory, nor riches, nor honors that we are fighting, but for freedom. For that alone, which no honest man gives up, but with life itself. He looked up at his father. This document puts the will of the people above the king, who had long been regarded as appointed by God. The king could be replaced if he didn't uphold the freedom of the Scottish people. Very good, Pat. The Scottish people understood the value of that precious jewel of liberty, John replied. So what is the most important thing you've learned from this document? Patrick thought a moment, dragged his fingers through his still damp hair, and sat back in his chair. That man has a right to freedom, and it is his duty to defend it with his life, he answered. He then leaned forward with a piercing gaze at his father and put his hand onto the book. This is a declaration of independence. The Scottish people stripped the jewel of liberty from the king's crown and put it back where it belonged, in the hands of the people. Yet Henry may have fun with tricks and tipping canoes, but the lad's got a strong head on his Scottish shoulders, Max said happily. We, oui, my Henry is brilliant both in his humor and his seriousness, Liz agreed quietly. Max smiled and looked at the lanky teenager in his checkered pants, bare feet, and hunting shirt. Then I think you named this place well, lass. He's living up to your name. Liz sat there admiring her teenage protege. Merci. But he hasn't reached the peak of Mount Brilliant quite yet. I love this chapter, A Brilliant Move, and I've had the privilege to not only visit Studley Plantation, the site where Patrick Henry's first house was, but also to visit Mount Brilliant in the countryside there in Virginia, where actually John Henry is buried. 
Some friends of mine privately own the property and they allow me to kind of walk around on it whenever I'm there. It's really an amazing thing to go on site and see where history happened. And I always encourage you to do that. Well, in case we uh, failed to mention it, we've gone straight to Jenny's corner today. Which turns out to be a good thing for me as I, uh, uh, <clears throat> I failed to prepare a Nigel's news nugget for today. We and I failed to properly segue from the chapter to Jenny's Corner and introduce Miss Jenny. And, uh, well, I failed... Uh, I failed to do anything wrong. <laughs> I was busy watching everybody else fail. <laughs> and? Uh, and I failed to keep me thoughts to myself and badmouthing what everybody else did. Indeed. Ah, uh, well then, now that we've all failed at, uh, something, Miss Jenny... Why this emphasis? Aren't there better things we could discuss today? There's so much that we could chat about with this chapter, but there's one particular line that I kind of wanted to bring to your attention today, and it's this. Clarice says, sometimes young people have to experience failure as they figure out the right path over time. Let me ask you, have you ever failed at something? I have, lots of times. And I've shared this before, but it's worth repeating. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to be a marine biologist and swim with dolphins. I wanted to design greeting cards. I wanted to be a singer on Broadway. I was all over the map. And finally, my parents said, Jenny, why don't you go into marketing? Because I was always selling something as a kid. Well, I figured out that my dream of being a marine biologist and swimming with dolphins was not going to become a reality when I got a bad grade in chemistry in high school. This was the only D I ever got. And my dreams of being a scientist were over in that moment. But that's okay. You know why? Failure helps you cross things off the list that God does not intend for you to do. Inventors like Benjamin Franklin, all of these experiments that we know that he worked on, things that he invented, well, guess what? There were many things that he figured out didn't work first. And Thomas Edison even said such a thing, right? Indeed, Miss Jenny. Uh, referring to his invention of the light bulb, I believe Edison said, I have not failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that don't work. <laughs> so, failing to excel in science, Miss Jenny, what does that do to your marine biologist dream? So, that was off my list. Well, what about music then? I did go on to enjoy music, but not professionally. So I sing in choir at church and in chorus at school, designing greeting cards and being creative. Well, I like designing my book covers and working with my wonderful, talented illustrator, Rob Moffat, but I'm not skilled to draw it myself. But my love to see a vision of what art should look like I'm still passionate about that and love to do it. The creativity that God wired me to really create and produce was in words, in books. Ah, bien sûr. And so, off you went as an author, right, madame? But even that took me a while to figure out, because as a kid, I wrote fruity tales as an eight-year-old about talking fruit. But it didn't dawn on me that maybe I should be an author until I was an adult and the real Max and Liz came to live with me and inspired that. I was working in marketing at Scottish Rite Children's Medical Center and here I was working at a great place for a good cause, helping sick kids, but I had 
what they call divine discontent. I'm like, I'm not doing what I was meant to do, what God placed me on this earth to do. I say, brilliant, divine discontent leading to God's true purpose. (laughs) I rather like that. Uh, But it's curious that the Maker allowed you to need so many years to get your divinely appointed purpose. Well, guess what? Many times, people don't figure out what they're really meant to do until much later in life. Did you know Moses was 80 (laughs) before he realized the main thing that God put him on this earth to do, to deliver his people out of Egypt and take them to the promised land? So many times, failure is a necessary part of us trying to find the path that God chooses us to walk. The one thing that he has gifted us to do that no one else on earth can do the way he has designed us to do it. Oh, oui, madame. The mega has given a special purpose for each of us. Aye, even though we're bound to have a few failures along the way then. Uh, So, uh... So enjoy the failure along the way. Sometimes it can be fun. (laughs) It might be disappointing, but you're always going to learn something from it. Indeed, Miss Jenny. Thank you. And in the coming chapters, we shall see young Patrick Henry struggle and fail a number of times. And yet, he goes on to be a great man. We like Ben Franklin and Thomas Edison and Moses. And so we'll leave us all with a challenge for today. Think of a time you know you failed, but don't leave it there. What did you learn from it? What were you able to cross off your list like Miss Jenny did? And most importantly, what do you think God is doing with it? Hey, and then if you feel like sharing that with us, we'd love to hear it. Write to Miss Jenny at jenny at epicorderoftheseven.com and share your uh, failure to success story. And maybe then we can share it on a future episode. What was that address again, Jenny? Email me at jenny at epicorderoftheseven.com. And with that, that's a wrap. We'll see you next time. Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderoftheseven.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandee! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember... You are loved and you are able.